turn with me to Acts chapter 21. We're going to be looking at a fairly lengthy chunk today. We're going to begin in verse 15, going all the way up to verse 36. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manassan of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, and when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those whom have believed? They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has deviled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came, to, came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! Well, that's beautiful. Let's just pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Uh, Many moons ago, when I was in kindergarten, I had a pretty serious crush on a little brown-haired girl in my class at Lowell Elementary School. Her name was Samantha Armstrong. I've never forgotten this. I hope she's not listening. Um, I really had a thing for her, but I was afraid to actually talk to her. And I remember one day after school, my brother... uh, forcing this interaction between us. He didn't actually, he couldn't talk me into going and talking to her, but he said, I'll go talk to her for you. And I said, well, don't go without anything. And I I reached in my pocket and I pulled out a dime that I had found on the ground in the schoolyard and said, give this to her and tell her I like her. 
It wasn't much, but it was all I had. And it seemed important to me, a budding numismatist, you know. And so I, I, I send this coin over to her, and she sent it back with the immortal words, I don't care. <laughs> How many of you have ever experienced the feeling that your best is just not good enough? <laughs> I, I think we experience this in lots of ways. It doesn't stop in kindergarten, does it? Uh, many of my home projects feel like that. Um, Sometimes marriage can feel like that. Um, parenting is often like that, and, and work is like that, and school is like that too. I mean, I'm not there anymore, thank goodness, but you know, only in school, it wasn't just a feeling that you were inadequate. At the end of the semester, you're actually given a letter grade proving how inadequate you are, you know? But this feeling of inadequacy that we are all far too familiar with, I think, has a common theme, because to be not good enough implies that you're being judged by somebody, right? Uh, in school, it's your teachers, right? Uh, at work, you have a boss. Uh, if you're a parent, your kids like to judge you, God help us. Grace is our toughest judge. Her name doesn't always fit her. Um, <laughs> but just kidding. She's a good kid. Uh, in, in marriage, your spouse can judge you. In some ways, in, of the list I've given so far, home projects are probably the easiest because in that case, I'm my own judge and sometimes I'm hard on myself and other times I cut myself slack, you know? It doesn't have to be up to code today. It's okay. I feel good about it. It's all right. But the problem in all of this is that we're all being judged all the time. And this is even more so the case if you're a public figure. Now, as your pastor, I'm kind of like the public face, I guess, of LVPC, right? Uh, I know you all judge me based on my sermons. I know you do. And sometimes that's good, and sometimes it's bad. It depends on the week. Uh, but even if I do preach well, I know that I'll face criticism in some other arena, usually well-deserved, you know, because I don't communicate well. I don't answer emails in a timely fashion. Sometimes I don't answer your texts at all. Uh, I don't call to check up on you often enough. Uh, I change things sometimes in ways people don't like. I've become convicted I run kind of a shoddy Bible study. I need to correct that. Two weeks ago, I was informed by two people that I preached way too long. <laughs> and it's okay to point these things out. I get together with Dave Green every week just to hear what I should be doing better as your pastor. <laughs> but the fact is that I don't always do my best or even try to do my best. I need constant reminders to do better because my default position is to do less than that. But even if I fixed everything and I tried much harder and I did my very utmost best, my best would still never be good enough, not for everybody, because I'm not Jesus, so how could it be? And even Jesus, the perfect man, had his critics. Now. I say all these things not to induce a pity party, and I'm not comparing myself to the Lord. I'm just saying that critics will always criticize, right? And your best will always fall short somewhere with somebody. And the best we can do is surround ourselves with merciful judges. That's why I married Georgia. She's always telling me I'm doing okay even when I suck at things. <laughs> so why I say all this is that today, as, as we're reaching the end of Paul's third missionary journey, it ends kind of ugly, doesn't it? 
And, and we've been with Paul through a lot of trials, a lot of problems, but the whole tone of the story is about the change because it's, it's going from church planting revival mode to a courtroom drama, and it's going to be one long, endless episode of law and order from here on out is kind of how this works. And it happens because Paul's best is just not good enough for some people, at least not for his judges in Jerusalem. Paul is finishing this trip after nearly four years on the road. Most of that time he spent in Ephesus. It was a glorious trip. It was very fruitful. It was a very successful missions trip. But for the last few months, he has been haunted with this idea that Jerusalem is going to be the end of the road for him. And the Holy Spirit himself has testified to him that this is so. And Paul also knows in the midst of all this that he has no choice in the matter. He is compelled. He is bound to go to Jerusalem. He basically describes himself as a prisoner before the fact. The same Holy Spirit that's warning him about the danger is also giving him no choice but to face it. But even as Paul faces the inevitable, he still makes one last effort to please his critics. It doesn't work, but he does try. And so... If you'll remember, the last we saw, Paul had been in, in Caesarea up, at this point, up until this point, and he was at Philip's house, Philip the Evangelist, the guy with the four daughters. And, and, and everyone was blubbering at the end of that story, if you'll recall, because that guy Agabus shows up and, you know, what a charmer he is, and he, he, he tell, you know, pr- predicts doom for Paul. Paul, you're heading for trouble in Jerusalem. He does that weird thing where he borrows Paul's belt and does something, you know, and, and it's the first clear indication we have had that all of these brothers have now seen that Paul is actually facing major trouble here. But Paul tells everyone, look, quit crying. Let me do what I have to do. There, there's like way too much emoting going on in the room for Paul. So he, he quiets that all down. They say, fine, the Lord's will be done. And today the journey continues to the final destination It says, after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Okay, so, so far so good. Uh, Paul at least makes it to Jerusalem, the metropolitan area, without any problems. There's no posse waiting on the road for him or anything like that, so he gets there. And, and if you'll recall, Paul already has like a sizable entourage. He's got a bunch of guys with him, right? But Luke records even more guys tagged along from Caesarea. So Paul's feeling pretty good. He's walking in with his gang, right? And they go to Manasson's house. Manasson who, you ask? Exactly. Nobody knows. Um, we know nothing about him except that he has a Greek name and he's from Cyprus and his name is impossible to pronounce. Um, maybe Barnabas knew him, I don't know. But he's an early disciple, says Luke. Maybe he settled here way back at the first Pentecost when Peter first preached that sermon when the, when the Spirit descended. I don't know. But in any event, Manasseh is proof that, that Paul, he does have friends in Jerusalem. It's not all bad. Not everybody is hostile. God always seems to give you friends in tough spots and a home when you have no home. And actually, the situation kind of gets even better. It says, when we had come to Jerusalem meaning the downtown, I guess, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, and when they heard it, they glorified God. So they leave Manasseh's house out in the burbs, they go to Center City, and the brothers in Jerusalem, and this is James and the elders, they are thrilled to see Paul. 
And somehow that was really encouraging when I came across it because the Church of Jerusalem hasn't always been all that warm about Paul's mission. Uh, They were kind of on the fence early on. If you go back to chapter 15 where the Jerusalem Council took place, you can see that this was the case. The Jerusalem church had to be convinced of Paul's mission to the Gentiles. They were iffy about the whole thing, and they only really let it go after Peter spoke up on Paul's behalf. So when you see these guys all warmly embracing Paul on his return, it's just really, I don't know, it does the heart good. Uh, And even James, uh, Jesus' earthly brother, is happy to see Paul. Paul's like a returning hero after all this time. And the church leaders are excited to hear the work Paul has been doing. And for just a brief glimmer, just for a second, you think, maybe Jerusalem's not going to be so bad after all, right? Maybe all these dire warnings were kind of overblown. Maybe Agabus is like the resident Eeyore of the early church, you know? He's just seeing the dark side of everything. It could be okay, but then no sooner does Paul stop talking, he gives this glowing report, then the elders give their own report, like, that's great that everything's going so well everywhere else. They said to him, "Uh, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So Paul gives this long, glowing report, this window-on-the-world kind of thing, right? All these wonderful things happening in all these churches, in all these cities, all over the empire. Only for James and the elders to tell him, yeah, well, welcome to Jerusalem. We're still fighting the same battles. (laughs) While you've been off spreading the gospel and growing the church, we're still dealing with the same infighting and trying desperately to hold the church together. The church at this time, especially in Jerusalem, is a a patchwork quilt of factions. And this is sad, but I think many pastors and sessions can probably relate. Uh, When you think about foreign missions, what Paul's been doing, foreign missions sounds exciting. Uh, If you had the chance to go plant churches in, in Africa or the former Soviet republics or something like that. That sounds really invigorating. It's cool. And, and most of us have either been on missions trips or we have thought about going into foreign missions at some point and we picture gospel-starved people and uh, eager to devour God's word. And, and there are places in the world that are really like that. But not everybody's called to do foreign missions, right? Somebody has to stay behind with the flock and tend the flock at home. And that sounds like a peaceful job, but it ain't always. And James and the elders of the Jerusalem church have been trying to hold together a very complicated coalition of believers here. It's confusing because you have in Jerusalem, you have Jews who are from Judea. You have Samaritans. You have Greek-speaking Jews from the diaspora. You have Gentiles who converted to Judaism but then came to know Christ. You have other Gentiles that came to know Jesus directly and they're here visiting. And then you have Jews who don't accept Christ. There's all kinds of things going on here, right? But just within the church, it is racially and culturally diverse in spite of its being largely Jewish. And it's hard for us to appreciate that there's still no clear distinction at this point between the Orthodox Jews and the Christ followers. It's confusing. For all intents and purposes, Christianity in Jerusalem is still just a Jewish sect. Many of the Jewish believers in Jerusalem still see their Christian faith as an expression of their Judaism. It's part of their heritage. They still meet in the courtyard of the temple. These guys on one end of the spectrum, they view Paul as a threat because he is saying you can have Christ 
without all the Jewish stuff. That the gospel is not restricted to a Jewish context and that you don't need to be a good Jew to follow Christ. Now, this is all true. It has that benefit. And Paul's right that the law is not salvific. Nobody goes to heaven on the strength of the law. There is no difference here between what Paul is teaching and what Peter believes or what James believes or any of the other elders of the church here. But Paul doesn't have their street cred. He has an unfair reputation as an antinomian, anti-law, that he basically lives to slander the law and Moses. That he's basically running around the empire telling good little Jewish boys and girls that their heritage is meaningless and disrespect your parents. Even though actually Paul is preaching the same gospel, he's preaching it to a different audience, and this leads to mistrust. And many assume that Paul's motives must be off. They've brought the slander that Paul is an enemy of the law, and that not only is he talking smack on the law to Gentiles, he's also teaching Jews living among Gentiles to do the same. So yes, Paul has enemies in Jerusalem, or to put it more charitably, he has a tough audience, hard judges. And what's amazing is is that Paul's enemies in this case are not just Jews. The concern of the elders here is that these are the Christians among them. James says there are thousands of Jewish believers, at least nominally, in this church. So these are people on our team. These are church members. The difficult people in the church. The purists. The suspicious types. The divisive types. You ever met any of those in a church somewhere? probably the saddest and most shocking thing about today's passage because the danger to Paul isn't coming from outside the church so much as from within which is exactly what he warned the Ephesian elders about if you'll recall in this case it's not the elders who are to blame they've embraced Paul they're happy with him but they warn Paul look we can't speak for all the people in our care some of our members they might get out of hand brother uh, they've brought they bought a lot of conspiracies about you and Look, we've tried to straighten them out, but to no avail. And it's, look, it's just not always easy shepherding the sheep. Pastors try to lead people. They try to shape their thinking. It doesn't always pan out. And look, the the church is no different today. It will always be subject to cultural movements and concerns. Ken and I saw that last week down at General Assembly because cultural forces and events have a way of creeping into the church. And people come to a thing like General Assembly passionate about these matters, not always because Scripture is necessarily clear about the issue, but because largely there are deep-seated suspicions towards people on the other side of the aisle. And I say all this, I felt like General Assembly made some good choices overall. A lot of people disagreed. But the goals of our leaders down there, and I don't envy Roy Taylor and and Brian Chappell when they were trying to lead these discussions, their goal is to hold together a sometimes fracturing coalition. And it's painful to watch at times. And going into some of the sessions in St. Louis, you could cut the tension with a knife And I think similarly, Paul is walking into a tense environment. And that's what the elders are saying. And some people in the Jerusalem church, like, look, they think Paul is the single biggest threat. He symbolizes the biggest threat we face. He's emblematic of the problem. And so the elders give him fair warning that, like, look, we can't control all the people. So how can they protect Paul? What can they do? Well, they have an idea, a suggestion that they make. 
beginning in verse 22. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Now, I've heard it argued from this text and, and others that Paul was in fact a Nazarite. I'm not sure that we can make that case explicitly, and we talked about that some before, but it seems like at least, at the very least, the elders in this situation are proposing that Paul play the part of a Nazarite, that he become a temporary Nazarite, as it were. And the general idea is that they happen to have, look, we've got these four guys in the congregation who are currently observing the Nazarite vow, even though they're Christians, because once again, this Jewish-Christian blending in Jerusalem made for some weird overlaps. Now, the, the Nazarite vow is found in num Numbers chapter 6, and it required, among other things, that these guys not shave their heads for the entire duration of the time that they were under the vow. It also required that at the end of the vow, they go to the temple and be shaved. And at that time, they also needed to offer some offerings, including a ewe, a ram, a bunch of bread, uh, wafers, olive oil, grain, wine, like a whole shopping cart full of stuff to sacrifice on the altar. That's how you complete the terms of the vow. Well, that's kind of expensive. So the elders hatch a plan. Paul, go with these four guys we have. Go to the temple and pay their costs. You buy the stuff and go get shaved with them. And that way, these church members we're concerned about, these church members will see it and they will be impressed and they will see that you take the law seriously and that you're proud to be Jewish. It's kind of roughly the equivalent of me wearing the robe and collar every week. People know or suspect that I don't feel natural doing it, right? Because I grew up in New Life Philly. But if I do it, people will feel reassured. I'm not trying to change anything, right? And I think, similarly, Paul is playing politics a little bit at this point. Now, at that point, it's worth asking, why? Like, seriously, if Paul is in the right, and none of these things are necessary anymore, why is he going out of his way to appease these people? Why let them set the terms? I mean, do the math. Paul's not a wealthy man. Missionaries don't go into this for the money. Is that right, Elder Harley? I'm pretty sure. But, but he just bought sheep, 10 sheep, and, and like a crap ton of bread and oil and all this stuff. None of these things were cheap back then. They didn't have the Entenmann's Outlet Store, and they didn't have Wonder Bread. And he's willing to make a public spectacle of himself. He's going to empty his wallet, shave his head, and submit himself to the temple authorities. It's humiliating, especially if your heart ain't in it. And he goes to all these lengths just to reassure the gossips in the town. The folks who believe every slanderous thing they've heard about him. And he obviously doesn't think it's going to work because he knows God's plan. He knows that he's meant to suffer and there's nothing he can do to prevent the inevitable. But he sticks his neck out and tries anyway. Why? Why would he do that? Well, partially, I think Paul does it out of submission to the elders of the Jerusalem church. 
Their judgment is that this is the best thing that Paul can do. And Paul respects these brothers enough and respects their authority over this church enough that he is willing to follow their counsel because he is a guest after all. I think I could stand to learn something here from him. But also, I I think Paul does it for something bigger. I think he does it for the sake of love. It's actually for the same reason that James advised the Gentile believers in Antioch to avoid blood. There's no reason why a Christian shouldn't be free to eat rare steak. It might be sinful to eat them well done. But the reason here, so many of the rules we follow as Christians are not for the sake of our salvation or for the law, but for the sake of our fellow believers and the harmony of the church. Call them cultural church mores. Paul is essentially following his own advice that he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He wrote that a short time ago while he was in Ephesus to the Corinthian church, advising the Corinthians not to eat meat if it makes their brother stumble. See, Paul will do anything for the sake of the church. The church is the bride of Christ, and you do whatever it takes to maintain peace within the bride. How many of you married men, by show of hands, do things that are both unnatural and unnecessary just to keep peace with your wife? All right, a few bold souls out there, okay. Phil, behave yourself. No, like, no. <laughs> Why do we do that? Happy wife, happy life, right? That's what they say. Now, you don't do that if it means violating your own conscience or violating the word of God, but we all do silly things in the name of love, don't we? Even giving dimes to little girls across the schoolyard, I mean... But if we love someone enough, we desire harmony with them. And that's the point. Paul's not doing this because it will work. He knows it won't. He's doing it out of love for the very people who want him dead. In other words, he's imitating his master. He's walking into the hornet's nest of Jerusalem. He's submitting in every way, and he's doing it out of love for his enemies because Jesus died for the whole church, including the busybodies and the divisive people and the gossips and the purists and the legalists. Well, we all knew it wasn't going to work, right? When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. I want you to notice just a couple things here. Uh, First off, it it seems like it's the Jewish believers who start the trouble. Uh, These are Jewish believers from Asia. They probably recognize Paul from his time there. They have beef with Paul over theological and cultural disputes. But notice that they call on all the Jews to help them. Men of Israel, help! They're willing to reach outside of the church for allies in the cause, which is often a sign that your cause has less to do with the gospel than you think it does if you find yourself enlisting the support of various unbelievers might not be the cause of Christ. And their attack on Paul is threefold. They say that Paul is 
basically anti-Jew. He teaches against the people that he's anti-law and that he's anti-temple because apparently he brought Gentiles in. Now, the first thing is a lie, the second is a mischaracterization, and the third is a case of mistaken identity and false assumptions, which Luke explains. This was all just guilt by association. Somebody saw Paul hanging out with Trophimus yesterday, and so they made the logical leap. He must have brought him into the temple. It wasn't true, but it was enough to get the temple worked up. And it's similar to what the crowds accused Stephen of, if you'll recall, way back in chapter 7. But even if any of these accusations were true... Are any of them gospel issues? He's anti-Jewish. Well, that's funny, because God had plenty of harsh words for the Jewish people. You could accuse him of the same at times. He's anti-law. Well, the ceremonial law is no longer binding anyway. And, and look, Jesus himself was never really concerned about Gentiles going into the temple. In fact, that's a large reason he overturned the temples there, is because they were taking advantage of Gentile visitors from out of town and not letting it be a house of prayer for all nations. So the accusations against Paul are invalid because they're inaccurate on the facts, but they're also, for the most part, irrelevant on the merits, even if they were true. But the crowd still turns against Paul, even as he goes out of his way to show honor and respect. Again, you'll notice he doesn't even say anything here. He's still quiet. All of this only goes to show, once again, that Paul's best is still not good enough for them. It's really hard to shake a bad reputation. Nothing you can do will change some people's perceptions. And at the end, Luke noticed he said that, he said that they slammed the door of the temple after they took him out. And that slammed door is an ominous sign because if you'll, this is the last temple scene we have in the New Testament if you don't include the heavenly temple in Revelation in all the historical records. This is the last scene in Herod's temple. And with this slammed door, the rupture between Jew and Christian seems to take on a sort of finality. This uneasy peace between the Judaizers and those who trusted in Christ alone becomes broken, and the believers would no longer be welcomed here. And I don't think it's purely coincidental that the temple was destroyed just a few short years later. Ultimately, the law and the gospel didn't live together very easily or well. And don't get me wrong, the law is still beautiful, and it's worth studying because the law is a picture of God's will. It's a picture of his character. It is perfection. But no one will be saved by it. The law can only bring awareness of sin just as surely as light exposes things done in darkness. And so when the door is shut, on this, me this, this megachurch of Jerusalem, it's not going to survive. It's thousands of members strong, but in a few short years, it'll all be destroyed and lost to history. The coalition can't hold. And Paul, now standing essentially in Stephen's place, stands accused of much the same falsehoods he once hurled at Stephen, basically accused of being a Jewish anti-Semite. And so now his faith and his national identity have become mutually exclusive. And these heavy doors separate the Old Testament world of the temple and the ceremonies and the cultural laws and the New Testament church who are meeting like refugees all over the empire. But that's where the Holy Spirit is moving these days. He's not moving in the holy temple, but in living rooms 
and in third-story apartments where guys fall out of windows and rented halls that are hot in the middle of the day, in pagan cities all over the Mediterranean. The Holy Spirit is invading the world, and yet the temple has shut him out. At the end, Paul's not only dragged out of the temple, he's also dragged out of the city, essentially. It says, as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort, that would be the uh, chief of police, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Smart move. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. And some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. So Paul gets arrested more for his own good than anything else. And the closing words from the crowd are just as hateful as from the first when they say, away with him. Now, we can look more at some of this stuff next week, but you'll notice that the crowd in Jerusalem has the same, let's call it, spiritual gift of confusion that the Ephesians were plagued with. They're all angry, and nobody even knows why. And opposition to the gospel is often like that, as we've said before. Everyone is yelling something different. The whole scene is quickly turning into a riot, so the tribune has to arrest Paul just so they can get a clear story out of him. And Paul gets dragged to the barracks, out of the temple, at the edge of the city, the very place where Peter was imprisoned a few years back, where he made that midnight escape. And the mob is so violent that the cops have to carry him. Now, what are we to do with this story? How can we see the gospel in this ugly scene? How can the story change us? Well, I think I want to answer that by cheating, as I sometimes do. I'm going to turn and I want to read a few selected passages from another book. And it happens to be the book right after this one. It's a letter written by Paul a short while before. And it's a letter he wrote to the church in Rome, the church that he has his sights set on, the church he's soon going to visit. And he's writing to this church in Rome, uh, possibly from Corinth, but he is already aware of how he's got this danger coming up in Jerusalem. That's already kind of on his mind. And he's writing to these Gentiles in Rome. And what does he say? I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. That's chapter 9. Chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. 
Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Jumping to verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and how inscrutable his ways Does it sound to you like Paul has given up on the Jews? Does it sound like Paul hates his brothers? This guy is literally heartbroken for his countrymen. And if he has this much compassion for the unbelieving Jews, how much more so for those who know Christ? Paul openly and forcefully declares to the Roman church his love for the Jews. Paul still loves these guys at the end of the day. And honestly, I wish I loved the peace of the church as much as Paul does. I'm a conflict avoider and a a people pleaser. Many of you have known this and experienced it, but that's not the same thing as being a peacemaker. I cringe when things get heated at Presbytery or General Assembly. I do the same thing at session meetings. I'm much happier to kick a can down the road than have to argue it out right now today. And sometimes that's wise, other times it's lazy. But Paul, I think we know, is decidedly not a conflict avoider. We've seen enough of this to know that it's true, yet he loves the peace and unity of the church far more than I do. He doesn't shy away from conflict. He doesn't avoid difficult people but he is still a peacemaker. He's not afraid of a fight, but he loves the church enough to do his very best to keep the peace. Those of you who are members of this church or any other PCA church, you know that in the membership vows, we promise to study the purity and peace of the church. It's the last vow we take. It sounds kind of weird and archaic, but Paul puts those words into action. He really does study the peace of the church. Not grudgingly, he's not doing this out of fear, and he's not doing it to protect himself because he knows that's not going to work. He does it out of love for the church and because his ultimate judge is not in Jerusalem or in Rome, but is sitting at the Father's right hand. Now I'm going to venture a guess that very few of us love the church this well. We fail our membership vows constantly, at least I know I do. And even Paul didn't love the church perfectly. And when he tried, it still wasn't enough. But we serve a master who did love her perfectly, and he is always enough. 
So we are called to love the church, not because our efforts will ever be enough, but because Jesus was and is. And it may not impress them any more than that dime impressed Samantha. But love her anyway. Love her even when it's awkward and even when it's unnatural and whether it's enough or not, because your true judge is watching. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you as always for your word. We thank you for what Paul was willing to endure here. Lord, And not, not only did he just go in and just take the blows, Lord, that he went in with an attitude of love and submission and a heart for the peace of the church. He is not a rabble-rouser in spite of whatever he's accused of. But Lord, more importantly, we thank you that your son modeled that even more perfectly when he went into Jerusalem and endured what he endured. And we thank you that because of what he endured, even our best being not good enough, Lord, doesn't matter. We thank you for how much you love your church. Help us to love it well. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever.